Hey, it's Jenny. And real quick, um, I have got a new resource for you. If you are ready to get 2023 started off on the right foot, you can go to JennyLidle.com slash best hyphen year and get the five day challenge um, to your best year ever. Again, that's JennyLidle.com slash best hyphen year. Welcome to Becoming Your Best with Jenny Lytle RN. I believe that we are all made with unique gifts, talents, and desires, and that comparing ourselves to others only leads to frustration and wasted time. Join me on a journey to becoming the best you you can be. Welcome back to another episode of the Becoming Your Best with Jenny Lytle RN podcast. And today we have a special guest with us, Edward Smeek. And Edward is the founder of the Soul of Caregiving coaching practice. He is an in-demand speaker, coach, and author of The Soul of Caregiving, a caregiver's guide to healing and transformation. Edward holds an associate degree in nursing from Newton Junior College a BA in psychology from Boston College, an MA in counseling psychology, an MA and PhD in depth psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute. He is a former registered nurse, healthcare executive in mission, values, spirituality, ethics, end-of-life care, and community health. He holds titles as a board-certified chaplain with the National Association of Catholic Chaplains and is an associate coach with the International Coaching Federation. That is a whole lot of schooling, Edward. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it, and just enough. And thank you so much for this opportunity to speak with you. Oh, you're so welcome. I've loved when we chatted before, and I think you definitely have a lot to offer. So let's, let's jump into how your caregiving journey got started. The earliest memory I have of being a caregiver was when this stranded puppy came to our door one winter day and he was crying and I opened the door and I saw blood marks on the steps Aww. and I, he, I picked him up and I saw he had a piece of glass in his hand. Well, that dog became the first pet I ever had. I was probably oh between five and seven i can't remember exactly and his his name was sandy so i became a caregiver at that <laughs> early early time i also was always in the i was the oldest in of uh, three children oldest by four minutes because i have a twin brother but i was born first <laughs> and there's always that sense of helping out in the house and I then joined a community of brothers, and I was with them, oh, for maybe 20 years. And I, I went to nursing school. The order worked with those who were sick. And when I remember going to the novitiate, and we all had a small nursing home, and I was right there in the get-go, which was probably called a, an, I was called an orderly then, but now it now it'd be a nurse's assistant. And then I developed and became more interested and I became an RN. And I worked in a chronic long-term care facility. And then I was very interested in the psycho-spiritual 
aspects of the people I took care of. And I always would spend more time besides the duties of an RN, which is also to, to work with them on that level. But I just enjoyed trying to be present to them. And that led me to get a bachelor's in psychology and a minor in theology. And then I also worked in counseling. And I enjoyed, again, the greatest gift I have as a caregiver is to see someone that I'm work, working with gain insight like a light bulb goes on. And that to me, and I think for all caregivers, they get that sense of, of this is what I'm meant to be because that sense of satisfaction that you receive from the client that you're working with is what keeps us sane. <laughs> yeah. There are many, many times when you deal with very difficult situations. And I remember one time in nursing school, I had difficulty with this patient and I talked to my supervisor and, and she said, well, you don't have to like every person you deal with. You just have to be present to them. And so that really helped me. As I developed more and more, I was very interested in chaplaincy. I did that for a while. And then I was also interested in ethics and also end-of-life care. And I developed a ethics committee for the elderly, which deals with a lot of issues about advanced directives and dealing with issues that most of us don't deal with in our culture. We don't like the D word, D dying. Maybe years ago, the physician would say, to the family, Mr. Smith, your mother isn't doing very well. In fact, she's dying. But I want you to know that I'm taking care of her and we're going to give her the best comfort care we can do. Today, the doctor will say, your mother isn't doing well. What do you want me to do? And so immediately, the family feels they're the ones causing the life and death of their loved one. And the doctor has given up his authority to, to the family, and the family feels the burden of that. And so oftentimes, I was with different families, and I would say, they would say, what's going on? And I was saying, what, what has the doctor told you? She's not doing very well. What do you think is happening? And they may say, I think they're dying. And I'm saying, yes, that's true. They are dying. And so what we're concerned about is how that how your mother will die. So that's why we bring up, and the doctor asked me to talk with you about it, do not resuscitate, because given her situation, that's going to be a futile exercise. Mm -hmm. So then I would work with them on that particular thing. So as I got more and more involved in, in, in administrative work, I became a mission leader. I then became interested in, in, in community health. How can we work with the community more? And also how to be able to be that container. And psychologically, that means if you have children and they're hurting, what do they do? They run to their parent, and what does the parent do? The parent puts out their arms and holds them. In our culture today, 
caregivers need to know that they're the arms that holds the family in crisis. And so that's very important that when people are in crisis, they don't know how to make decisions. So you have to help them, guide them to make the appropriate decisions. That's different than, oh, what do you want me to do? There's that sense that you reach out. I also have expanded my notion of what is a caregiver. Usually we think caregivers are those that just work in healthcare. Mm -hmm. well, I've been in healthcare for almost 50 years. And what I've learned is that the heart of being human is to care. So we're all caregivers, parents who care for their children, spouses who care for each other, adult children who care for their parents, adult children who care for their, a child who is sick. Educators are caregivers. First responders are caregivers. Absolutely. Safe safety officers, police are caregivers. We're all caregivers. And so how do we then take care of ourselves in a culture that says we have to be invincible? And being invincible means like we have to be superwoman or superman. And even they had their particular Achilles heels. And so what I discovered was that there are three cultural taboos that prevent caregivers to take care of themselves. Caregivers are notorious in not taking care of themselves because they are committed to be altruistic and take care of the other. So then there's what I call other care, taking care of those we're called to serve versus self-care. And I have redefined self-care as soul care. And soul care means that we're in touch with that deep inner part of who we are as a person. And my theory is when we're in touch with that inner part of who we are, we can make appropriate decisions. And so that's my definition of soul. It's that spark within us. It's that animating principle that gives us life. So the three cultural taboos that I discovered was number one, caregivers don't trust what's going on within themselves. They may sense something is going on, but we're told not to trust it. We're told to be big boys, don't cry, and, and big girls are too emotional and they're both wrong. And men fear crying, getting in touch with their emotions. Women feel they're too emotional, so they deny their emotions. And the bottom line is we don't trust what, what's going on, nor do we trust our family, nor do we trust our teammates, because we're told we, that's part of the job. We have to just suck it up, though we don't trust. And because we don't trust, it leads to the second taboo, which is we don't communicate our story. Each of us have a particular story. If I'm a first responder and I go to a, an accident in which a person is killed, that affects me. And so how do I acknowledge my the normal feelings I have in, in, in abnormal traumatic events. And we're taught not to be in touch with that. And we're told we can't communicate our story. 
the irony is healing is relational. And if we don't tell our stories, we don't feel we're heard. So we may come home and our spouse asks us, how was your day? And we say, oh, I don't want to talk about it. And immediately the other, the spouse feels rejected instead of saying, it's been a real tough day. And the spouse can say, can I, can we talk? Can I support you anyway? And they, so the family doesn't, the family spouse doesn't feel rejected. The caregiver might say, oh, it's too much for them to bear. Well, it's really not too much to bear because they're isolating themselves is more difficult for the fit, for the spouse. The spouse then f- starts building up resentment. Why don't you trust me? So the caregiver wants to be heard, doesn't want advice, just wants to be able to have someone listen to them. Listening is a skill that we all have. If we develop care plans and we develop goals for those we serve, how do we use those same skills to develop our own action plan? It's not foreign. Mm -hmm. We have those skills. I can develop an action plan for self-care. And the third taboo has to do with don't show your emotions. And that's where big boys don't cry also. And big girls are too emotional. And we just don't have a, we don't share the pain that we have. Michael Kearney calls that soul pain. Soul pain is something in us that says, please look at me. Please acknowledge what's going on. Don't be afraid to enter into an experience with a coach or counselor to be able to sort it out with someone that you trust. And so those are the three taboos that prevent most caregivers from seeking self-care. And so when we don't take the time for self-care, when we don't figure out a way to do that, then often that can lead to compassion fatigue or burnout. And so why... um, Why do you feel like that's something that's so common with caregivers? First of all, compassion fatigue comes from the Latin word, which compassion, come means with, and pasio means to suffer with. So I don't know a caregiver who doesn't suffer because because they love or care for those they serve. And so right from the get-go, there's that sense of, compassion fatigue. And Charles Figley wrote a book called Compassion Fatigue. And in it, he says, all caregivers suffer vicariously with those they serve. So it's an occupational hazard. And compassion fatigue has to do with something we love doing, but we don't stop to care for ourselves. So we're exhausted at the point of almost, I don't want to be a caregiver anymore. And they become almost like robots at work, work, like they become a caretaker. They lose Mm -hmm. that animating spirit within them, but it has to do with something they love. And that's different from burnout. Burnout simply has to deal with 
I'm not accepted in an organization for my talents and abilities. I'm just a clog in a wheel. And therefore, no matter what, I don't get that satisfaction from those I work with that my gifts are important, that I'm important. So that human factor is left out. It's like the myth of Sisyphus. We're climbing up a mountain with a rock and the rock keeps coming down. We never feel satisfied. And I went through burnout 20 years ago. And it was because I was idealistic and I didn't listen to myself. I didn't listen to those promptings that were going on because I thought they were wrong. And no one really acknowledged the fact that I needed to rest. I, the two people I was working with in this project, every time I said I need a day off, they said, oh, you're just lazy. They were both workaholics. And I listened to them instead of saying stop. But I remember we had a potluck retreat day and I was caught coordinating that with the other two directors and I was making spaghetti sauce and I lived in Rome for four years and I always say my heart is Italian so (laughs) I said what would I bring I'm going to bring spaghetti sauce and make spaghetti mixing all the spices and you can smell the aroma of the olive oil and the garlic and and I also would put a lamb chop in there because that sweetens the tomato sauce and, and the basil. And you, you could just imagine this wonderful sauce. And right in the middle, middle of it, I said, I can't take this anymore. I broke down. I said, I can't. And I sobbed and sobbed. And in my book, I, I think I have a couple of paragraphs called the tears or for spaghetti sauce. And I remember going out, the kitchen was right next to the room we were having the retreat. So I remember going out and telling the other two, I'm, I'm leaving. They said, you can't leave. You're co-directing this retreat. I said, I'm gone. And I left. And I don't know how the spaghetti sauce ended out. I don't know how the retreat ended out. But one of the directors came out and said, Ed, I can't take care of you. And I said to myself, I don't want you to take care of me. I do remember a year prior this wonderful Jesuit counselor, Leo, said to me, Edward, if you ever need help, call me. And I called him. He saved my life. And after a month of seeing him three times a week, he was holding me. He became that container to hold me in the crisis. I said, where am I in a scale between one to 10? He said, you're between eight and nine, and I consider 10 irreversible. So that's how bad I was. He held me in that crisis. And really, I often say he saved my life. So that happens when we acknowledge we need help. We're not a failure. We're not going crazy. We don't have a mental illness. We're just exhausted. And he said, you're bankrupt, Edward. We all have our we all have our reserve. You hear these heroic things of some someone, a child's injured or hit by a car, and they just pick up the car. You hear these stories of that reserve energy. He said, "You don't have that. You're bankrupt. So you're going to have to slowly get back to normal." And that's another important factor. 
it has taken us a while to get to the experience of compassion fatigue or burnout. So it's going to take us a while to heal. And a lot of times we don't take that time. We don't have that patience with ourselves. We feel like it's something that we'll get to linger, but there's not going to be a later if we don't deal with those things. Exactly. And I remember telling him, being young and naive, I said, I want to do what the Holy Spirit wants me to do. And he looked at me, he started laughing. And he said, the Holy Spirit wants you to do what's the easiest thing to do. And so when you're overwhelmed and you have two or three choices or five or 10 or 12, pick the low hanging fruit, do what's the easiest thing to do. And since that time, that's what I do. Mm -hmm. Maybe the easiest thing to do is to take the nap that I never take or take the 10 minute walk that I never do or decide to walk around the block or instead of eating my lunch at wherever I am I go outside so yes. it could be just little tiny things mm. when we feel overwhelmed can we say to ourselves what's the easiest thing to do yes and that's so beautiful because we can make it so complicated. We can try to, and I feel like in some ways we feel like it really is, but it also is the way to justify that I can't do this right now because I don't have time for this big thing. And that's what I work with primarily women, but I work with women on is, is figuring out those little things that we can do. It's not about the big spa days and beach vacations. It's those things like getting enough sleep and just pausing enough to say, what do I really need right now? And then doing what you can to, to make that happen. So yeah, that's so practical and so simple, it is not so easy, sim but simple. It, it is simple. <laughs> and you bring up an important factor, which is to reflect. And in our culture, it's 24 seven all the time. And we're not geared as humans to be that way. So instead of being a hamster in the wheel that turns round and round or being on a merry-go-round that goes round and round, I think there's a play called Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. And that's what I had to do 20 years ago. And so how do we allow ourselves those moments of respite, those moments of reflection and can we allow ourselves to pause? And it might only be for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. It might only be to feel the ache that's going on and to realize that it's going to take some time, that we're kinder to ourselves. And we may have some type of meditative practice. It doesn't mean we sit in the lotus position. I often, when I'm gardening, I get insight. When I'm swimming, I get insight. When I am cooking, I love to cook. And as I'm preparing something, I may get insight. And so reflecting can be anything. You may experience some great experience with one of your children, and you go, wow, and how do you reflect on that fact of being a parent instead of saying, oh, I'm not good enough or I make mistakes? Oh, we all don't we? Absolutely. And that's the other part of caregiving. We think we have to be perfect. We're not perfect. 
And I always say, don't we hate people that think they are? <laughs> For sure. Because we're not, we're not gods. And that brings up the archetype of the wounded healer, which simply means that I recognize within me that there's areas of growth. I'm not perfect. In fact, my caregiving teaches me how to be more human. I often have had the experience with doctors and nurses and parents, and I say, I said to them, do you feel you're a better person because of what you do? And they say, yes. But what they don't do is reflect on it. They go to the next chore. Yes. I'm sure in the mornings we wake up and, or, and we say, these are things I want to accomplish this day. And by the end of the day, we accomplish three of the 20 we wrote down. Who cares? So tomorrow I pick up again. So we have to not be too hard on ourselves, which often happens. One of the things that I try to do myself and that I try to encourage people I'm working with to do too, is those things that we say to ourselves and when we get frustrated with ourselves for some perceived shortcoming or failure, think about if your friend, if a close friend was telling you the story of, okay, this is what happened in my day. Um, and then what would you say, what would you say to her or him? And often it would not be the same thing that you're saying to yourself. And because we're so much, especially as caregivers, I feel like we're so much more compassionate and kind to others than we are to ourselves. Exactly. And we can hold ourselves to this unattainable standard. And it's my voice that I hear in my head more than anybody else's. So I've got to be nice to me. In the Jewish tradition that came over into the Christian tradition, the great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your mind, your heart, and soul, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Yes, yes. And so how do we deal with acknowledging that we could love ourselves? Right. And there's a psalm that says, Oh, Lord, you knit me in my mother's womb, and wonderful are your works, O Lord. So when we wake up and look in the mirror, do we say, wonderful are your works, O Lord? <laughs> As my hair turns, I lose my hair, or it turns colors, or I have saggy cheeks, or right, I, yeah. I, do I say, wonderful are your works? Look at who I am. In fact, Houston Smith, a professor of religion at Berkeley, often says the more we become I am, the more we recognize our own I am-ness, the more we become like God who says I am who I am. So to be human means to be in touch with that real part of who we are. So caregiving is a real gift to us. It's a real vocation. And when we allow ourselves to, I use the term swim in that reality, that we're, we're not drowning. We're really enjoying that, the sense of caregiving that animates us. That's what protects us from developing compassion fatigue or burnout, because we have learned self-care. Yes. We have learned soul care. And when we put that together, we're able to prevent burnout and compassion fatigue, but we're also able to deal with 
compassion fatigue or burnout when we have the symptoms. Absolutely. Edward, I thank you so much for for being here and sharing your vast knowledge and experience with us. And so if listeners want to get your book, I know that it's available on Amazon because that's where I got it from. But is are there other places that they should go to find out more about you? They can go to my website which is soulofcaregiving.com. If they want a signed copy, they can order it on the web on my website and I will mail that to them. Okay. So there's a small fee for mailing than the price of the book. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I do ask, I do ask two final questions to everyone. And so the first one is what is your favorite self-care practice? My favorite self-care practice is to come into my office, sit in my chair and just be. And just, I just love the sense of that quiet of giving myself permission. I close the door and here I am. And oftentimes in that sense, I, things will pop up and I'd say, okay, that's fine but I just want to be present. And that may often lead to some type of prayer. I enjoy, as I said, swimming. And that often is a way of exercising, getting in touch with my body. And I remember one time being really angry over how I was treated by an administrator. And I, I didn't want to deal with the anger. And because are we praised growing up when we get angry? <laughs> no. <laughs> And so we're not comfortable with anger. And so I remember swimming and I must have flew across the pool because I was digging deep into the water and I go, and I'm working this out. And it just, I just realized, yeah, he, that particular person did not accept the gift I was offering. And then that was, it was over. The, those are a couple of things I do for self-care. Yes, I love both of those. And I have gotten more into just that taking time to to be still, to be quiet, just to be. And that's a challenge, especially at first, but it's, oh, but it's such a gift to ourselves too. We're not comfortable with silence. Exactly. Yeah. Silence, stillness, all of those right. things. But then I find that when I do take the time for that, Oh, then I really start to crave it because I realize just how much I've needed it. But it starts with those little baby steps. <laughs> That's why I have in my book, the revised edition, I have questions and spaces for people to write their insights. Yes. So it's not a how-to-do book, a book that encourages you to reflect not only on the stories that are there, but reflect on how those stories remind you of your story. Yes. And that's where the person can write, this reminds me when, and they gain insight in, into that experience. Yeah, that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful part of that. And my, my last question then is, so my tagline is never stop becoming the best version of you. And so what does becoming the best version of you mean to you? It means simply what I'm doing with you now. It means that I have this sense of mission at this part of my, this last third of my life to give. And the giving is so reciprocal. And instead of 
being a couch potato after I retired, I have the sense of mission to reach out to those with compassion fatigue. And so my willingness to be part of your show is to be able to communicate what I believe is my gift now. Mm. And it's often, you're one of maybe 15 blogs I've done in the last two months, because people are saying, I want to hear about your story. And I hope that story animates people, especially one who has experienced burnout, to get in touch with what's going on in them. Yes. Yes. I don't like using survivor because that sort of plays into a victim. I know I've learned from that experience. And so I want to be act proactive and reach out. And that's what I feel most happy about. I love that. And I love taking, taking the things that, that we've encountered and that we've learned from and sometimes a little more slowly or painfully than, than we would have liked to, but then helping others along that journey too, maybe to avoid some of those things. And if not, maybe to come out on the other side a little bit more quickly. So thank you very much. I know that, I know that our listeners have gotten a lot of, a lot of useful tips and encouragement from you. So thank you so much, Edward. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Stressed out, but not sure how to change it? Decrease your stress in a week or less, even if you don't have much time or energy. Grab my brand new free seven days to less stress guide at jennylidle.com slash guide and uncover the secret to less stress without a lot of effort. You'll get the simple three-step framework for quick and easy transformation. You'll also discover how to have the biggest impact the fastest develop a customized plan to use even on your toughest days and pull it all together in a simple weekly plan. That's at jennylidle.com slash guide. Until next time, take a deep breath or two and never stop becoming the best version of you. Disclaimer. Although I am a registered nurse, the medical and health information contained in this podcast is provided for general information and educational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional advice. Accordingly, before taking any actions based upon such information, I encourage you to consult with appropriate professionals. I do not provide any specific medical or health advice and the use of or reliance on any information contained in this podcast is solely at your own risk.